0: Black Lives Matter. Empathy. Empathy is understanding, understanding what others are feeling, Anchoring what they might be
1: feeling and needing.
0: From the arc of empathy.com, welcome to Episode 3 of Empathy, a podcast. Our podcasts are about empathy in today's world and throughout history. I'm Todd Price, here again with Kenan and Carol Heiss. Hello, my friends. How are you guys?
1: Hi. Hi there. Good. good to have
0: you again good to have both of you uh carol we're uh delighted that you're going to be a, a fixture on this show since you illuminated us uh so well last time on the coronavirus and how to shelter in place well thank you we're, we're happy to to have you in our in our midst uh on a regular
2: basis my pleasure
0: so last uh oh yeah oh, well said Kenan. um we talked last episode about the murder of George Floyd and the protests that ensued after that, and, and uh, we had a really good discussion after, we're, after the show, the, the three of us, and, and uh, just decided to continue what we started there. So today we're going to turn to the subject of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, and we can only speak about it from the perspective of a few white people, since that's what we are. But I I uh, I think that's important we have to talk about that it's it's uh, incumbent upon us to change racism um, as much or more than than black people they're the ones suffering from it but but we hold the reins to actually do something about it um, and
1: and so do they
0: yes uh, they've been doing it for a while though so now it's uh, it's our our right. turn to to step up to the plate marching.
1: yeah.
0: So, uh, and of course, we're doing all this in the context of a podcast about empathy. So uh, um, I know we've all been doing some reading and we're going to weave in some uh, discussion of books and uh, some media that we've been watching to educate ourselves. But the two of you have some powerful personal stories about seeing racism firsthand and uh, I really want to focus on those stories, and, and maybe we'll weave in some, um, some things that we've learned along the way in, the, in just the last couple of weeks that, that pertain to that. So, uh, Kenan, let's start with you. You, uh, you grew up in Detroit um, around the time of the, the Great Depression, and you have some uh, powerful experiences um, with Racism firsthand. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, it goes back to 1943. I live just northwest of Detroit in Southfield. And uh, I was 11 years old, and I was standing by the highway that we walked near. And it was a major highway into the rest of Michigan. And I saw several trucks coming down uh, northwestern highway. And they were filled with men standing in the back uh, with rifles in their hand and the other hand holding onto the sides of the truck. And I was very, very confused about this, so I asked my parents, and they explained to me that there was a race riot going on in Detroit, and these people were coming in to shoot the Negroes, as they, we called them then, blacks. And I realized wow. I didn't have the term Black Lives Matter at the time, but something in my heart said that they did, because I was, I mean, at the same time, my brother Paul and I were serving mass in an all-black uh, church, Catholic church, and uh, uh, we we knew them, and we knew the priest who was running. It was Father Alvin Deem, just a very special person, and he would t- take us, h- bring us home, and we'd stop off at some point, at somebody's place, and had invited us for dinner, so we got to know them as people, and and my parents were telling me that these people were on that truck. These men were on that truck to kill black people. And it just was beyond my imagination and and beyond my, my really belief even. Uh, and, wow. But, you know, it was a sense that their lives mattered to me and uh, not to these men who were driving riding on that truck.
0: So let me... Make sure I'm painting the picture here. So you were—you're an 11-year-old boy. You have been serving in a all-black Catholic church. So you knew these people, and the, here comes a truck full of armed men, and your parents tell you they're going to go kill people, maybe some of whom went to your church.
1: For all that I know, yes. Wow. And. Uh... You know, it, uh, it 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 influenced me in my later life. I don't know how directly. I can't say that this is something I recalled later on. But I later was able to uh, become involved in the civil rights movement, and I was able to uh, attend the march on Washington. And as a reporter in Chicago, I uh, was assigned to cover eleven different speeches in different places on the same day by Dr. Martin Luther King. And it was a a real meaningful thing to me. And I I didn't attach these things together. It doesn't work that way. Maybe it does for some people. But um, I started off in the right place with that priest and those people that we got to know. Mm -hmm. And my parents.
0: So I was going to ask about your parents. What did... They communicate to you. You said they told you that these armed men were going to kill black people or Negroes, as you said, uh, in the midst of these race riots. What what sort of feeling did you get from your parents about race and uh, you, know, you know people who didn't look like you growing up?
1: My my father worked in a uh, Vickers plant, which they built parts for airplanes, and he said to us. We are hiding a black person in the, in the plant. We're not hiding, but they're keeping him. He doesn't go home. He stays there overnight because we don't want him to be hurt. So that was what I got from my father.
0: I can't imagine that. And so, I mean, that that's like Nazi Germany. How could they feel that strongly that he was in that much danger that they needed to keep him there? Was this in the midst of the race riots?
1: Yes, it was in the midst of the race riots.
0: Wow. So I did read that uh, I think it was something like 19 uh, black people were killed during the race riots or maybe it was, the number might have been higher than that. I do recall that there was quite a large number of them who were killed by the police. Uh, There were some Hmm. some whites killed. Many
1: of them were killed by the police, not all. Mm -hmm.
0: No, not everyone who was killed were killed by the police but Conversely, there were zero whites killed by the police.
1: Mm-hmm. There were subsequent, also, major, even worse race riots in Detroit, in the 50s, I think, and in the 60s, mm. long after I had left the city.
0: So, tell me a little bit more about covering Martin Luther King. You said you you followed him as he did 11 speeches in one day?
1: Yes. And I was as a reporter, and uh, one of the things I I didn't, I wasn't able to get his message across and what I what I wrote up. I was a kind of a side story because I was a very fresh reporter. But I asked the uh, uh, police at the at the scene of each one, and and the head of the, his organization, what the how many people were in the crowds, and they were enormously different. And uh, I don't remember how wildly different, but at least three or four times one versus the other, and mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, it 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 got me involved in many many ways in in the community and and one of the things that I did in writing obituaries for the Chicago Tribune was I made a very special effort to include women who were not excluded from it and but also blacks and and a very prominent. Um, uh, black novelist in Chicago who I never met, he said, oh, I know who you are. Uh, you write about us. Mm. And uh, so that was one of the most meaningful sentences anybody ever said to me. That's very cool. Um,
0: well, let me turn uh, for a moment and uh, bring Carol into it here. So, Carol, you have a story about uh, a family member um in regards to some racism going on uh, around the Chicago area, I think specifically in Cicero. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh,
2: Yes, I was probably nine years old, eight or nine, living in Berwyn, which is a suburb, two suburbs out from Chicago going west. And in between Berwyn and Chicago is Cicero, So one day, my two brothers, about 11 and 15 years old, were extremely excited and keyed up, and they were going to take their bicycle, and they were going somewhere in Cicero, which was very unusual. We pretty much stuck around our own community, and I asked, where are you going? And they said, oh, we're going to Cicero. We're going to help some people move their furniture. But there was a look and, an, and an, an attitude about them that made me think they were up to no good and that they weren't going to be doing what they said they were going to do. But they never talked about it. They wouldn't answer questions. And it was years later that I realized what it was that they did on that day in June in 1951. They had gone to Cicero to participate in the torment of the, I believe it was the Clark family that were attempting to move into an apartment in Cicero. They would have been the first black residents there. And they were met with, the family was met with the police who told them they needed a permit.
0: And you had a permit just to move there.
2: Yeah. And they said, no, well, they contacted their attorney. I later learned. And their attorney said, you don't need any permit. And he got some kind of an injunction or order that required the police to protect and assist them which they did not do instead uh, a mob formed they threw their furniture out the window they made a pile and they set it on fire and rioting ensued it went on for this situation went on for two or three days until the National Guard was called to put it out Cicero remained all white until the 1990s Berwin remained white as well until about the same time.
0: That is just not that long ago.
2: No, it's not that long. And ago. And of
0: course, you know, uh, as we see, it's it's in our midst. Racism is in our midst uh, today. It's uh, I I'm catching myself because I my surprise that it's not that long ago is part of what we're we're dealing with and part of what um, black people are dealing with is that. I think we as whites are so surprised at so many of these things that have been going on right under our noses and we just didn't see it. Um, I think you, uh, Carol, shared with me a a book that you've been reading called uh, Sundown Towns that kind of talks about that as well. Can you um, mention a little bit about that book?
2: Uh, Yes, I... I heard about, um, saw a little squib about the book, and so I purchased it because I kind of couldn't believe what the author had discovered. Um, He started off trying to um, determine what towns in the state of Illinois, uh, where he was also from, had signs and practices that said literally said, hey, slur, you have to be out of here by sundown or else. And it meant that if any black person was found in that town, they would, be, they would encounter violence. Okay, they so, would not remain there long.
0: So the word sundown town literally is a town that requires, uh, sometimes by city ordinance, sometimes it was just a sign that was, you know, accompanying welcome to town name. On the outskirts of town, that said, you're not welcome here after sundown if you're black.
2: Yes, and everyone understood it. It re- it resulted in um, in blacks being forced to live in predominantly uh, small enclaves of urban areas because other parts of the city and certainly the suburbs would not permit them. Um, And the author also goes on to say that he thought maybe there would be 30 or 40 towns in Illinois. And what he discovered was that two-thirds of all of the towns, cities in the state of Illinois were sundown towns, two-thirds. That is just staggering. Yes. And he discovered that... uh, uh throughout the midwest he did not include the south the south had their own things going on um but in the midwest and in the i believe the northeast it was pervasive uh, and after world war 2 um it became even even more established as suburbs were developed and uh, practices were established to keep blacks out, it's not a coincidence that most suburbs are white. There's a history to that. For example, Oak Park, which is um, um, a, a very interesting suburb of Chicago, that is and has been for quite a long time a very liberal suburb, was one of the one of those suburbs that had sundown policies, and there were no blacks coming into that suburb for a long, long time.
1: When you came into Chicago, I mean into Illinois, you saw the signs that said, the land of
2: Lincoln.
0: Yeah, that's right. And then when you went into one of these towns, you saw a sign that says, you're not welcome here after sundown. Exactly. That is hard to fathom as a son of the Midwest myself that i because so for me personally my I have family on my dad's side in particular um from the south my my uh, uh my dad's dad was from birmingham um and you know i i was always a little bit embarrassed about that whenever the stories about racism came up that oh I have this part of my family from the south and from um, parts that are historically racist, and um, but this really hits home to me that you know it doesn't matter where I'm from, white privilege and racism that goes along with that has been in my neighborhood as well. I just didn't know it.
2: Well, that's that is um, kind of the genius of that the author was able to tease out and how. Also how this um, exclusion of blacks from um, major parts of our cities and certainly our suburbs mm-hmm. affected the education, the possibility of getting jobs and the feeling state of a minority person who would dare to try to move or live in that community.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I want to touch briefly uh, Kennan, on the very first episode we did, uh, you sort of foreshadowed what was going to happen in uh, the low-income communities with the coronavirus. You mentioned all these uh, mechanisms that kind of force overcrowding in lower-income communities. Well, what we just discussed is the policies and uh, uh, force and violence and police force behind this crowding that has, is today resulting in, I think, I forget what the number is, 70 or 80 percent in Chicago of the people who die from COVID are uh, people of color.
1: Well, I, I just want to say that, you know, we can talk about the racists but there's a racism in all of us. And certainly, even while I was working in the civil rights movement, you know, I had in the back of my head and my heart prejudice in certain ways. I mean, I just accepted that, you know, this is, you know, yeah, they can't move into this there or something like that. You don't do that. But I do, I my my one thing I did, I went and got a haircut at it all black um barbershop and uh, you know it just it happened to be that way I never did it a second or third time but uh, I had the experience and uh, but in many many other ways I I look back and say I could have done so much more and uh, and cared so much more and I think that that's true I'm even now and I think it's it's what we have a responsibility in being white yeah yeah
0: um Uh, I alluded to this the last episode, I've been um, reading a book that my wife introduced to me called White Fragility, and um, everyone I've mentioned it to hates the term, and I think that's probably part of the point, Uh, but one of the things that hit me is the author at one point reads a list, I don't know if I'm going to read the whole thing here, but there's a list of powerful positions in our society that are predominantly or in some cases exclusively held by whites. Uh, the 10 richest Americans, 100% white. U.S. Congress, 90% white. U.S. Governors, 96% white. Top military advisors, 100% white. Um, the, the list goes on and on. Uh, media and television, TV shows, 93% white. Uh, the people who decide uh, what we watch on TV that is uh, people who decide what books we read what news is covered, what music is produced uh, who directed the top grossing films of all time 90% white, 85% 95%, 95% it's just staggering how we have stacked the deck to where uh, you know we, we like to tell stories about oh look at this black person or that black person who has has made it And that that means that there's progress or that um, everyone can do it. And um, yes, there are stories like that. But the point is that the system is so stacked against um, people who are not white, who are not defined by society as white, uh, that it is extremely difficult to get out. And understandable how it has risen to anger that is boiling over. Um, Not that I condone violence, but... Uh, I get why the anger is there. Seeing, starting to see things from their side a bit more, which
1: is what empathy is, right, Kenan? Yes, indeed, indeed, and it, it, it's that's the word. And this is a situation that we have to change. We have to use the empathy to make this country what. Trump was claiming he was going to make it great again, and I'm not sure it was ever great since 1619 when the first slaves were brought to the country. Yeah. I, or when Columbus came here and did it to the Indians.
0: Yes. Uh, we've had so many... Uh, racism is, is American. Uh, that is what American means, is basically to be racist, to, to exclude others from systems of power uh, for yeah, your own gain. Uh, that's that. That's what it
1: means. While claiming that we're noble, yes, really noble. Yeah.
0: Um, you you mentioned some some terms here that, that we might throw in. We're, we don't have that much time left today, but we'll, we'll uh, discuss some of these next time as well. But um, obviously, the topic of our our show, uh, the the title of it is Black Lives Matter. Uh, but um, another one I wanted to highlight is the term law and order, which came in into prominence, not until just after the uh, the civil rights movement really began to take hold. So after Martin Luther King began to really start to change uh, people's attitudes about race and, and racism and race awareness, um, this term law and order comes about. Uh, so I'm curious why you put that one on the list.
1: We're going to talk. Uh, next down the line, some about Eleanor Roosevelt and what she did, all the different things that she did to try to change the racial uh, attitude in this country. She was in the South, uh, and, and the uh, ha- was having a meeting, and they were. She was sitting with the blacks. They said you couldn't, so she picked up her chair and sat in between the two. She. There was a woman who, uh, a very famous singer, who was not allowed to sing in the. Uh, Daughters of American Revolutionary Hall, she made it so that she could speak from the uh, sing from the uh, Lincoln Monument.
2: The great Miriam Anderson. Mm. Yes.
1: Mm. So, I mean, there are people who were real heroes, and she was one of them. By far.
0: Yeah. Um, I want to mention that uh, another term that I did not know until recently, uh, Juneteenth, which. Um, is the day that the slaves in Texas uh, were told that they were free. So it was a full, I think, two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation. Texas was so far from um, where most of the Civil War had been fought, there were no Union soldiers around there. So they didn't know that they'd been freed. Of course, no one bothered to tell them. And Juneteenth celebrates the day that the last slaves were made free, and that's June night, 9, June nineteenth, I think. So that's coming up here in uh, less than a week.
1: I have a friend whose grandmother—he was he's black. His grandmother, he was a slave, and he knew her as a child. So it's—it's—it's um, it's not that far long ago.
0: No, it is not that long ago.
2: I'm not not sure that this this really fits in. Um, But I keep, for some reason, I keep thinking of when I was seven or eight years old and I was at that swimming pool. Actually, I was at another swimming pool that did allow blacks in. And I had always been told by my racist police captain uncle Uh, about how vicious black males were even children that you you needed to stay away because all black children carried knives with them all the time Mm -hmm. and uh, I was at the swimming pool and all we could bring in, not even a towel just ourselves with our suits and so this boy and I had struck up a conversation and we were talking and I said to him you know, you don't have on a very big bathing suit. Where do you put your knife? Hmm. And this little boy about my age said, what did you say? And I repeated it, and he said, I don't have no knife. What are you talking about? And I had a sense of profound shame and embarrassment oh boy. Um, at, at kind of making a fool of myself asking this dumb question. But the result was I didn't believe anything that any adult said about black people. It's After that, terrible. I'm not saying I did not or do not have aspects of, of racism in me, but on a conscious level, I just said to myself, they lie. Hmm. Yeah. So maybe this Black Lives Matter um, explosion of righteousness that's going on here will give lie to a lot of other um, bad practices that have become ingrained and, as you said, taken for granted. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, let's make it so. we uh, It's incumbent on those in power to do it. And we can either... Um, Become those people encourage those people Uh, you know as whites we tend to know um, or be related to those people Um, so let's continue to at least do that that's something we can do is educate ourselves as to what's going on so um, there are some positive things going on as well here in Evanston we have a reparations committee the first of its kind um, to my knowledge in the United States and uh, I actually attended one of their meetings uh, last week. It's, uh, if you don't know what reparations is about, I would uh, highly recommend uh, Google Tanahasi Coates and read his article on the case for reparations that appeared in The Atlantic uh, several years ago now, which kind of brought the topic back to the forefront. It's essentially trying to repair, that's where the word reparations comes from, in a financial sense, the wrong done to descendants of slaves who have been continued. Uh, they, they've played with a uh, stacked deck, a deck stacked against them, um, and continued to do so. So uh, I'm, I'm very happy that we live in a, a, a town that does have that going on, although in the same regard, we have the Fifth Ward in Evanston where most black people in Evanston live, because of redlining practices in um, uh, the uh, real estate industry in the 40s and 50s. And I don't know if I'm getting the decades right, but um, that's been going on forever. So there's a lot of work to do. I guess what that's what I'm saying. But thank you both for uh, the discussion today. Thank you to our listeners for, for joining us. And uh, we will continue next time talking more about uh, empathy in throughout history and in today's world. Thanks, Carol. Thanks, Kenan. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye now.